This is Tectonic from the Financial Times. I'm Jemima Kelly, and this is a bonus episode in our series on the future of crypto. In the last episode, we heard the FT's innovation editor, John Thornhill, speaking to Chris Dixon, who leads crypto investing for Andreessen Horowitz, the Silicon Valley venture capital fund. They talked about why Andreessen Horowitz is investing billions of dollars in Web3 startups and Chris's vision for an internet built on the blockchain. So here's that interview in full. And a reminder, I'll be back next week with the third episode from this season of Tectonic. So here's John Thornhill and Chris Dixon from Andreessen Horowitz. The interview starts with a question from John. Right, I'd like to drill down a bit into what we're talking about when we discuss Web3. I mean, it's a somewhat nebulous term that people use in different ways. What, what's your understanding of it? Sure. So the way I view the history of the web or the internet is in, in broadly three cycles. So the first era we call Web1 was the 90s and basically the 90s. I mean, you had the internet before that and sort of academia and government, but kind of the commercial internet really developed in the 90s. And the key thing in the 90s is that the kind of governing systems were open protocols. So specifically, the web is this protocol called HTTP, email is a protocol called SMTP. And so if you were, for example, Larry and Sergey at Google, you know, building your search engine, you were building on this quote unquote platform um, that, that was the web. And what that meant for Larry and Sergey and for all the entrepreneurs of that era and investors of that era is that if you built something interesting, you really own that. And that meant that you got to capture the economics, you got to control it. When you build a website, it's your website. In the era of Web 2, which roughly I think of as 2005 to 2020, you had the rise of these giant centralized corporations, namely Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, and then a whole set of kind of other ones like Twitter, you know, that are smaller, who essentially became the, essentially took over the internet for, for the most part. If you, if you look at if you look at the data and what people do on the internet, for the most part, they're using centralized services that are run by companies. Now, these this had a lot of advantages. These are great services. They're most many of them are free. Uh, they service billions of people. Uh, they provide, I think, a lot of utility. I'm you know just everyone who uses Google knows that it's an amazing product. Um, and it has the to downside be said, of it, Andreessen Horowitz yeah. made a huge amount of money out of those Web two companies, didn't it? And uh, yeah, look, and, and, and yeah, I mean, look, uh, and the the firm did well, and and uh, I, I worked in Web two. My partners, you know, obviously, um, you know, Mark Andreessen and others at our firm worked in it. And sometimes this is a you know people use this as a criticism against us on the Web three side. I think I, the, my view of it is, you know, yes, we were involved. Yes, you know, our job is to invest in kind of the frontier technologies, and that was the frontier technology at the time. I don't think any of us, though, including my partners, expected the the outcome of today, which you know, to me, looks a lot like the way that you know a, a very centralized internet where you have four plus companies that essentially run it. It, it, it you know, it's, I think it's it's we're at a point where it could become like radio and TV were. 30 years ago where you had, you know, super concentration, ABC, NBC, CBS. I don't think that's good for anyone. I think specifically, for example, I think it's bad for uh, creative people who try to make money using these services. So, you know, one of the remarkable things about these services is that they, they basically share very, very little of their revenue with, with their, with the people that create all the content on these services. So Facebook, Instagram, they, you know, Instagram is like Instagram. They, lots of people, you know, photographers, uh, 
writers, podcasters, build audiences on services like Instagram. Instagram makes their money on advertising. Instagram shares zero of that money back with the creators. Some of the services are better, like YouTube that shares a percentage, Twitch shares a percentage, Facebook shares nothing, Twitter shares nothing, Instagram shares nothing. It's very, it's very good for these companies. And you can see this in their market caps and things. They figured out a way to have other people create their content and take basically all of the money. Um, you know, so I think, so, so when we talk about Web3, just to go back to that, I, I think of Web3 as a new era of the internet with new architectures and new ways to build internet services that are either built using some of these concepts from crypto like blockchains and tokens. The key feature that, that I think is relevant to your audience is that you can now build new social networks, uh, ways for creators to monetize and all sorts of other games, just you know, any kind of application that you see today on the internet, you can now build in a new way using Web3 where the economics and the control of the services are mostly given to the users and not simply to a company. And so this is what you'll hear people talk about decentralization. And what I think of decentralization as essentially is you're pushing money and power out to the nodes of the network, the people that actually build these systems, the people that create the content of these systems, the people that create the software around these systems, instead of to a, a few companies. And so, you know, you, you mentioned that we've made a lot of money on Web2. Uh, you know, I don't think that any of us expected this level of concentration. And, and frankly, I don't think this is a good outcome, both societally and frankly, from our from a business point of view, because our business is investing in entrepreneurs. And I think that the idea of having the internet controlled by five companies is very bad for entrepreneurs and bad for VCs. I think that the you know if you go back and look at it, the, the first year of the web, I think was very good for innovation because it, it you had kind of this level playing field upon which people could build build new services, and that and that's kind of spurred a wave of innovation and entrepreneurship. And I my hope is through Web three we can return to an era like that where we get the best of both worlds. We get the kind of advanced functionality. And, and all the great things and bells and whistles of Web 2, but, but also return to a much more decentral, decentralized distribution of power and control the way we had in Web 1. I mean, this is very compelling rhetoric, but I'd like to understand in a bit more detail how in a Web 3 world would someone who is creating content for Instagram, as it were, keep more money from the content that they produce? Well, there's, there's a concept called take rate, right? So take rate in business is the percentage of of of, of the revenue that the kind of centralized company takes. And so on Instagram, that take rates hundred percent, they take all of it on the web. It's 0%, right? I mean, if you go through the web and you go to Google, the web is not taking any of that money, right? The web is, the web is an open protocol. And I'll just give you an example of recent, uh, uh, startup that we we announced funding for is called Farcaster, which is a, essentially it's a, it, a service similar to Twitter, except instead of being controlled by a company, a centralized company, Twitter Corp, it's it's an open protocol. Um, and it's, it's you know, kind of think of sort of RSS, except I think RSS had a lot of feature limitations that made it ultimately lose. I mean, the, the sad fact is RSS was, a, by the you know, just for the, the listeners who don't know, it was an open protocol that, that was the closest thing we had to an open protocol that could compete with social networks and it's essentially lost. If you look at the data, it's, you know, it's has minimal usage compared to the centralized services. And that's because in my view, um, it was, it could not compete on features. It could not, you know, if I go to Twitter, I can be C Dixon on Twitter. If I go to RSS, I have to set up a website and pay $10 a year and all these other kind of wonky things. Um, and so Farcaster is an example. It's very early, just so you know, these are like, in this case, it's a, it's a raw startup. It's a you know, seed stage startup. 
Um, but it's an example of something that I think has its feature parity with advanced modern social networks, but it doesn't have a take rate. It doesn't, it doesn't take any of the money. So if you, if you create something on top of it, you keep that money. If you're a developer who builds on top of it, you keep that money. They can add maybe a low take rate. And you see this in Web3, like OpenSea, for example, is kind of the closest thing I think you have to a kind of big centralized service in Web3. And the take rate's 2.5% compared to 100% on Instagram. So they take only 2.5%. And that's not because they're altruistic. It's because Web3 is architected differently, where the, the data is controlled by users and they can leave and they can exit. And so the centralized services have far less power. One of the reasons that Twitter has so much power, right, is I've spent 15 years on Twitter. I built up a big following. I can't leave Twitter. Right. I can leave if my e- if my email hosting provider, you know, takes too much money, I can leave that email hosting provider, that web hosting provider. With web two, you're you're stuck in these silos. You build an audience and you're stuck there. And that's why they have so much power. I mean, we can go into it, but you know, it has to do with network effects and in, in web two, how the network effects accrue to these companies. You've described web three as a kind of golden age for creatives. Could you give us some other examples of maybe companies you're investing in or models that you've seen where creators can make money out of this? Yeah. So, for example, uh, we've we've made a number of investments um, in in what we call Web three gaming, and so these are games, video games. So, think of something like Roblox or Minecraft. Um, these are and these are developers. One of the things, really exciting things is they're coming out of top companies, you know, game design companies like Riot and Blizzard and Epic and things like this, and they're and they're coming out and they're saying, hey, we want to build new styles of games where. Um, the business model is virtual goods. So just to step back for those who don't know the, the kind of the most dominant and, and, and growing business model in video games today are selling virtual goods. This is how Fortnite, Fortnite is a free game. League of Legends is a free game. Each of those games makes billions of dollars a year selling virtual goods. So you buy, for example, in Fortnite, you know, you buy skins, which are outfits for your characters, which are purely optional, but people buy them and they make billions of dollars. But right now all of that money goes to the company, it goes to Epic in that case or Riot. Um, so one of the exciting things in Web3 is you have this much more of a peer-to-peer economy. So you have um, individuals, uh, creative people can create those skins. The the company behind it still makes some money. They take a tax. But that instead of that tax being 100%, the tax is like 5% in some many cases or something. And 95% goes to the creative people. And so instead of having an economy, you basically have I mean, these modern games, EVE, League of Legends, Fortnite, they're, they're, they're economies. Um, they're, they're quite literally economies. They have, they have economists who manage them. They have, you know, essentially internal federal reserves and things like this. Um, and they think about it that way. These are the idea with web three is you can have economies, but you can have economies that are, that are kind of truly peer to peer, meaning the, the users can make money too, instead of just the companies behind it. And that's a really exciting idea and unlocks, I think, and just one of the reasons I think we've seen so many people kind of coming out of these top game companies that want to create things here is it's one of the kind of big new ideas in gaming, first big new ideas in gaming in a while. And it's, it's exciting and it, and it enables a whole new kind of wave of, of design and architecture. One other way of looking at this is, I think, um, to compare it maybe to Wikipedia, and I've heard you talking about that as a kind of miracle of a decentralized, crowdsourced, open resource, a kind of Web 2.5, I think you called it. How would that have been different? How could people have benefited from the content that they created in the kind of Web 3 world? Well, so yeah, so Wikipedia, I think of Wikipedia as one of the kind of miracles of the modern era. Uh, it's a wonderful service. Um, it, you know, I think a lot of people, it started, I believe, in 2001. At the time, you had these, uh, you know, encyclopedia, digital encyclopedias, like in, Microsoft had a product called Encarta. And, you know, when in, Wikipedia came out in 2001, it was, it had very few, few contributors and the content was, was quite bad. 
Meanwhile, in Carta, the, you know, they had beautiful pictures and content written by experts. But what happened over time is that Wikipedia, you know, attracted more contributors. And of course, you know, and eventually had this kind of flywheel where the contributors created better content, more users came that then led to more creators. And if you recall, for those for those old enough who remember, it, Wikipedia was very controversial. It was banned on college campuses. Um, it, there were lots of news articles talking about this level of inaccuracy and, you know, and the, the kind of risks that it would undermine experts and all sorts of other things. And I, as I recall, it was roughly 2007. There was an, I think it was Nature, some scientific journal that, that did a study and actually found Wikipedia to be um, to get to getting comp, sort of comparable accuracy to, to encyclopedias created by experts. And of course, today, I think most people would agree it's an incredible resource. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges with Wikipedia is, no, by the way, I, I think Wikipedia is amazing. And I don't, you know, I, I, a lot of what we're doing is, is in other areas where you haven't seen that level of decentralization. So, so I'm not being critical of Wikipedia, but, but there are issues. So for example, yeah, I just saw a stat recently. There's, you know, there's something like, you know, a, a thousand times as much content around Star Wars on Wikipedia than there is around like a bunch of. <laughs> other, you know, scientific topic. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a group of enthusiasts and the enthusiasts have various, you know, motives and interests and things like that. But look, I'm not criticizing Wikipedia. I think it's actually a wonderful service. I'm much more critical of sort of the, the things that haven't been decentralized the way Wikipedia has and specifically social networking uh, services for, you know, you think about like, let's take music as an example. So music, and, and I'm not criticizing any specific company here, but but if you just look at most musicians today, they'll tell you they make very little money on the internet. Most of them make most of their money, unless you're, you know, Taylor Swift or something. If you're an, if you're sort of an ordinary, not top fifty musician, you basically make your money offline through merchandising and touring and things like this because the digital economics are so bad. Does this have to be this way? Like, why 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 do they make why do musicians make so much more money offline? It's because offline there aren't these giant. I mean, they're Ticketmaster and things, but for the most part, they can go sell T-shirts directly to their fans. So one of the one of the things I'm really excited about, for example, in Web three and crypto or NFTs, where we've, we've invested in a number of services, Sound XYZ, Royal, um, and a few others, where essentially musicians can sell directly to their fans without being intermediated by a company like Facebook or Twitter. Uh, digital collectibles and other kinds of digital items using using NFTs uh, that that let them, I think, do a couple of things. They let them uh, give their fan base uh, new new kinds of interesting experiences, but more importantly, they 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 can make money directly from their fans in a way that without ninety nine percent of the money going to Spotify and other centralized intermediaries. I think you can see a similar. Uh, um, kind of dynamic in other, I think we will see a similar dynamic in other areas of, of online creation, podcasting, writing. I mean, look what Substack has done in writing. So Substack is not a crypto kind of web three company. I think if you'd asked a lot of people five plus years ago, can a writer with a newsletter make a million dollars a year uh, selling, you know, that newsletter to their audience, people would have thought you were crazy. You know, there are many writers making that kind of money now in Substack. I think what Substack demonstrates is the power of when you remove the intermediaries, how how much better creator economics can be. So a lot of people, I think there's a common myth out there that 
the internet is bad for creative people economically. I think it's not the internet that's bad. I think it's these giant centralized intermediaries. And once you remove them as Substack shows, you can you can you know the, you can transform the creator economics. And specifically, this is concept for those who are interested. Kevin Kelly, who's this great writer, thinker, uh, entrepreneur, uh, has this I think kind of um, uh, amazing kind of uh, canonical article called "A Thousand True Fans" from 15 years ago. And the idea was the internet would enable a creative person instead of having to to kind of get to scale and have millions of fans and make pennies off of them, could instead go and find sort of their thousand hardcore enthusiasts who are willing to drive and see their show or buy their cookbook or whatever it might be. And if you do the math that, you know, if you, if you have a thousand people and they're each paying, let's call it, you know, 20 bucks a month or something like that, you can make a really interesting living. And so the, the basic idea is once you remove all these giant intermediaries who take all the money, you, you can unlock all sorts of new interesting economic possibilities for creative people. I'm really intrigued by this idea of kind of removing the intermediaries and de- decentralizing uh, the power and so on in the, this Web3. And how is that squared with how Andreessen Horowitz is going to make money out of this world? How, how are you going to return the fund to your investors? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. So, you know, the, so, so the short answer is it's a different, it's a, it's a completely different kind of economic model in Web3 and crypto in, in which our investments are mostly in tokens instead of, instead of companies. And so to give you, and so what does that mean? So to give you an example, um, let's take Ethereum. So Ethereum is, you can basically think of Ethereum as a giant computer in the cloud that is owned by nobody. It's sort of run by 20,000 people. You know, anyone can kind of go go on and, and, and be part of the Ethereum computer. Other people can write code for the Ethereum computer, which are called smart contracts. And then a, a third set of people can go use those, that code. Uh, a lot of the crypto and Web3 stuff you hear about is built on Ethereum. It's sort of the most popular platform. Uh, Ethereum doesn't take, doesn't have a take rate, doesn't take any money from people. It does charge what are called gas fees, which essentially you can think of as the, the similar to the fees that old mainframe computers would charge. Sort of you pay for the amount of compute you use. Um, and the, the way it works is then essentially you can think of that, those payments. So as a system gets more popular, people are required to, to, to pay to use it. And that money that's, that's, you know, that sort of is quote unquote revenue is, is given back to the, to the holders of that token called ether. And so it's, you know, so there's sort of a whole economic model built around it that is based on that, that fundamentally is driven by the demand for using the Ethereum computer. So that token will be valuable to the extent that, that, that the Ethereum supercomputer becomes more and more popular. And so the way we make money is we buy the tokens very simply. And so um, we're essentially making a bet that that, that that computer will get more popular. Now, very importantly, those, those are tokens out there and there are people that work on Ethereum, but there is no, there is no Ethereum company, right? There is no, like this is ultimately controlled by, there are people that first created the system like Vitalik and other people. But at this point, you know, Vitalik is kind of the, the head of, you know, kind of the, has a bully pulpit, but no actual control. Um, and, and it's, it's controlled by the community in the same way that something like Wikipedia is. So just so I understand, this is very different from the traditional VC model where you would take an equity stake in a company and then sell it on. Um, you're making money out of the tokens, um, that of the companies. That- That's right. And that was, and look, and that was a big, that was a big change. Um, 
that's a big part of why we created a separate crypto fund. It required a different, a whole different set of things, including, I mean, I went out and, you know, raised money separately for this crypto fund from a, from a sort of subset of our investors who were, who, you know, were kind of into this new idea and it requires a whole sort of different legal structure, a different custody structure. And it's a pretty big shift. I, you know, I see, obviously I see it as an opportunity for us to, to lean in and, and be, on the frontier, but, but it, you know, it has all the risks of kind of a new category. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Other people have different visions of the kind of future of the internet, and Tim Berners-Lee, you know, the inventor of the World Wide Web, talks about re-decentralizing the web. I mean, he acknowledges, I think, like you, that there are many flaws in the web 2, um, 2.0 um, and wants to kind of hand power back to the users and has come up with a kind of new system called Solid, uh, which is working with people at MIT to give people more control over their own data. Would you consider that to be web 3? Uh, do you think that kind of uh, idea will work? Yeah, I mean, so you know, he's obviously a legend, and 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 you know, created the internet and and or the web, and um, and I have huge respect for him. I think that, like, I, I think that there's a couple. I think that there's that there's you need to do a couple of things to. I mean, the the, the incumbents we talked about, Google, Apple, Facebook, et cetera, are very powerful. They're very popular with users. I think that a very important part of taking them on is creating a new set of incentives and economics for, um, so, so that for example, creative people, like the way that we will ultimately, we web three will ultimately, I think, win over services like Instagram or TikTok, et cetera, is by offering, um, uh, the, the people that create the content on those networks significantly better economics. And so I believe kind of incentives and economics are a core part of how, of any kind of credible plan to uh, replace the giant web two incumbents. I don't see how you get there without, without significantly better incentives and economics. It just seems to me a core part of how you, you know, can take on some, some set of incumbents that are so powerful. And I, I don't know the details of, of his new system, but my, the last time I looked, it was much more um, very interesting architectural ideas, but I didn't see the economic component there. Uh, maybe maybe that's been updated, and so I don't want to speak on that. But but I do think that's a core part. Like I think I think it, th- th- it's also what creates the controversy around Web three and crypto because you know once you have economics, you have speculation, and you have people taking risks and all sorts of other things, and that creates the controversy. I, I believe you that that it's a sort of a double edged sword that you need that that uh, you know I'm not a fan of, I think that of all the speculation and other kinds of, you know, there's obviously a lot of bad things that have happened in the space. And, and by the way, one of the things we've been calling for is we, we really think that, that, that we need smart regulation in the space and that there's, it's been underregulated and we've talked a lot about that. Um, but, but at the same time, I believe you, you, you really need those economics 
and and that value, the sort of new incentives for creative people, for users to have a chance to really take on. Let's talk a bit about the regulation that you're talking about there. Um, I mean, on the one hand, you've kind of tried to draw a distinction between the people who are building Web3 and the people who are kind of running a casino and um, gambling on on Web3. How are regulators going to divide one from the other? Yeah, so it's complicated, and there's there's many nuances. I'll, maybe I'll give one example because it's been in the news, which is and, and and is being and policy solutions are being discussed right now, which are stable coins. So stable coins uh, are are tokens, you know, cryptocurrency that that is pegged to something like the U.S. dollar. In the case of stable coins, you have many different varieties of them, and so you have one called USDC, which is uh, co-sponsored by Coinbase and Circle, which for every token you have that that is you know, dominated as a dollar, there's a there's a literal dollar sitting in a bank account that you can go redeem. And that's audited and transparent and everything else. So that's one extreme, which I think is the good extreme. Like that's the right way to do a stable coin. And then you have other cases, some of which have been in the headlines like Terra Luna, which collapsed, um, where there, you know, the only thing backing it was it was this kind of circular system where the only thing backing Luna was was other tokens from that same system. So it was all kind of this circular um, kind of thing. And then you had basically a bank run scenario where everyone, um, you know, left the system and it collapsed. So so that's that. Those are just two examples of good and bad. And I think one of the things I found sort of frustrating is that both in terms of how regulators have treated it so far and, and, and just generally the kind of press coverage is these things have all been lumped together when in fact there, I think something like USDC has very strong collateral, um, uh, you know, very good kind of auditing processes, et cetera. And then you have some, you have these other examples where, um, uh, you know, the, the risks were much higher and not sort of properly disclosed. So I think that the, that, it's what I hope is that we end up with policy solutions that make the right distinctions between the good ways to build these systems and the bad ways. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of other people who are very skeptical of this world who are also kind of calling for kind of more interventionist regulation. And I think in June, there were 1,500 computer scientists and technologists who wrote to Congress uh, calling for more responsible regulation of crypto assets. Um, and they, they, to quote the letter that they wrote, um, They said the catastrophes and externalities related to blockchain technologies and crypto asset investments are neither isolated nor are they growing pains of a nascent technology. They are the inevitable outcomes of a technology that is not built for purpose and will remain forever unsuitable as a foundation for large-scale economic activities. There's a set of these kind of the the same critics that come over the Stephen Deal and there's a bunch of these. There's like ten people that keep orchestrating these kind of I would call them astroturfing kind of fake campaigns to criticize the space. Like, I, I don't, I mean, like I tell, tell yeah. me why are they wrong? Um, they're, because they're, they're, they cherry pick bad things. They don't, they, they ignore all the good things. They, I, you know, I, I've, I've yet to meet one of these. I've spoken to a lot of critics. I've been in the space for 10 years. I've yet to meet one who actually was very deep in the space and spent time on the kind of positive side we have 90 portfolio companies in, in the crypto web three space. I spend all day, every day with them. These are the smartest, uh, you know, most earnest uh, and creative uh, entrepreneurs I work with. I never see, you know, any of those, those folks discussed by these critics. Uh, I think you can take any, look, you could take 
you saw this during the, you know, the, the post.com era, pets.com. You can, if you want to focus on only Webvan and pets.com and ignore Amazon and Google, you know, you can do this with any era of technology. You can cherry pick the bad things and ignore all the good things. And, you know, I think there's a real risk with that as a country that we end up, you know, we've done a very good job. The U.S. has done a very good job being at the center of the last two years of the Internet. And I think it's important to get into the nuance and the detail. And yes, there are bad things and we should we should come up with smart regulation to reduce or eliminate that. But I think it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater to start to try to ban, you know, new types of computing architectures. I, I think that's um, and, and I think a, a intelligent discussion of it would go through the strengths and the weaknesses and try to figure out how we lean into the strengths and how we reduce the the, the negative things. And there are negative externalities. I don't deny that. I think it's just, uh, you know, I think it's cherry picking and exaggerating the bad things and ignoring all the good things. I'd really like to kind of return to this issue of how people are going to make money in this world. And I think Peter Thiel famously said that all startups should aim to become a monopoly and dominate a market in order to extract money from it. And I mean, most often that's not possible to achieve, but that should be the intent of any startup. How does that can philosophy square with the idea of decentralizing power, giving ownership and control and reward for the content that is produced back to the people who create this content? Um, uh, in other words, I mean, Peter Till seems to suggest that you can only make money out of the gatekeepers from from the internet. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, like, I think I think corporations have their own logic, and I think I agree with Teal that ultimately corporations will try to maximize their value, their shareholder value. That's what they do. Uh, if, if you look at you know, all of these companies, so take Google famously, the founder said, don't be evil. We're not going to put too many ads on the page. Eventually, you know, they, they're now, I think, so basically retired and you have professional management there. And I don't know, at least my experience on Google is the whole thing is ads now. And it's so, so we like to say, and so I just think you should expect, I would expect any company to try to maximize shareholder value. That's what they do. And I think that's what Teal was getting at. And, you know, in the extreme case on the internet, you have network effects, which lead to monopolies, which is what you have, I think, with, with companies like Google and Amazon and Apple, you know, or something close to monopolies. And so my, my view and what blockchains do is we don't, we don't pretend that human nature will change. We build new systems, as we like to say, that can't be evil instead of don't be evil. Um, so we assume humans will try to build monopolies and try to do all sorts of selfish things. But what a blockchain does is it builds into the architecture the rules of the system. And so even if the founders who are well-intentioned leave and professional management takes over and all sorts of other kinds of things happen that, that humans will do, the architecture of the system guarantees things that I discussed before, like the take rate or who controls the system or how the economics work. That's the key thing in something like a system like Ethereum is everything is all of the kind of the, the promises the system makes are baked into the baked into the architecture and can't be changed. That's a very, very important concept in Web3. Can't be evil instead of don't be evil. So I agree with Teal. That's what humans, that's what business people will try to do. Of course they will. They'll go try to create monopolies and big businesses and maximize shareholder value, what we can do to create a better internet, I believe, is create new systems where the network effects accrue to the community instead of to companies. And therefore, it makes it much, much harder for, for those people to go build these kind of network effect monopolies. And what gives you the confidence to believe that the incumbents aren't going to just muscle in on this new world and it really is going to be the insurgents that win? Yeah, they could. I mean, I, you know, this is sort of, I think of Clay Christensen's frameworks where you have sustaining and disruptive technologies. I think of 
So I think, for example, there's another really exciting technology people talk a lot about today is AI. I think AI is very exciting. I think AI is a sustaining technology. There, if you look at the investments that Facebook and Google and companies like that are making, they're making massive investments in AI. And it's very likely the benefits of AI will accrue to those companies because they control all the data and all the, you know, the, the, the big computing systems and everything else that they let you run those, those you know, kind of uh, take advantage of this new technology. So far, they've almost, almost I say outside of Facebook or Meta, they've all essentially ignored um, Web3 and, and have, I think, are full of, uh, you know, employees who are skeptical of it. And, and a lot of them are sort of active on Twitter as skeptics and just sort of are culturally averse to it, which, you know, in the same way that software companies pre-internet, you know, were, were culturally averse to, to the internet and desktop companies were culturally averse to mobile. I think this happens over and over. And I think it's the mark of a true disruptive technology in the Christensen sense. And so, so far I've seen no evidence that these companies will muscle in. Maybe they will at some point. I see that as an opportunity, and so we have, uh, I think, uh, you know, a much wider berth for our startups to operate, and as compared to areas like AI and virtual reality, where the incumbents are, are making significant investments. But I guess time will tell. And you think that this crash that we're seeing in the crypto world at the moment is an opportunity for you? I mean, there's a great investment phrase, isn't there, that you should be greedy when everyone else is fearful. Is that very much your philosophy? I mean, I, I would say I wrote a. a Twitter thread about this recently. My experience, having you know been, I guess, in the in the internet for about twenty years now, is that innovation is mostly independent of financial markets. So a lot of great companies are created in some some are created in up markets. A lot are created in down markets. If you just look at the look at it historically, when these companies were started, and so yeah, I do I do think it's an opportunity for us because there's a lot of great entrepreneurs entering the space. There's a lot of great ideas and and prices are lower. And so you know, as, as in, in venture capital, you're you know, that, that you're buying, hopefully buying low, selling high at some point, um, or, um, having things that, you know, investing in things that appreciate. And, and so, so my experience has been downturns, you know, have been opportunities in venture capital, but we, you know, we don't, we don't try to, we're not financial analysts, macroeconomists. We don't try to kind of time the market. We mostly just see ourselves as being in the talent business and finding great entrepreneurs, regardless of the financial cycle. Well, we must end it there, but thank you very much, Chris. Okay, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. That was Chris Dixon from Andreessen Horowitz speaking to John Thornhill. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a regular episode of Tectonic next week. <laughs>